You're listening to SpectraCast, the show where I get behind the scenes on diversity and inclusion. I'll be talking to a number of people who have taken steps towards greater inclusion of others, and also with those who have benefited from being included in the workplace. Whilst my bias might be towards recruiting and retaining neurodiverse people, I'll also explore practical approaches to be more inclusive overall. Hi, I'm your host Chris Turner, and I've made it my mission to help employers to embrace and reap the rewards of being more inclusive of neurodiversity. In doing so, I hope to do my little part in ensuring more neurodiverse people get the same opportunities and choices as everyone else when it comes to work and employment. So, if you're curious and want to learn from those who are doing it, and you favour action over inaction, then stick around. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for joining in. Now, today's episode, I've got a bit of a different guest. It's not often I get to sit down and have a chat with the police, uh, at least uh, when I'm on the right side of the counter anyway. <laughs> Look, and before we get started, if you're interested in learning more about neurodiversity, what it means at work, and how you could employ more neurodiverse people, please drop me a line, reach out to me, chris at projectenterprisecoaching.com, or find me on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a chat. Enjoy the show, guys. Thanks for uh, for joining, Adam. Uh, I've got Adam O'Loughlin here from the... Uh, where Whereabouts are you from, Adam? I actually live in Bristol in the UK, and thanks for having me, Chris. Um, I work for Avon and Somerset Police, who are one of the 42 police forces in the UK. So I'm in the southwest of England right now. Very, very nice. And now, as a, uh, as a member of the, uh, the British Police Force, what is your primary role? So I'm a neighbourhood sergeant. So I'm a sergeant in the police. I've been in the police for 17 years, and I work in Bath, a beautiful city in the southwest. Um, it is. And my main responsibility uh, in that city is to deal with, uh, well, well neighbourhood issues or community policing, what you might call, uh, in, for British parlance, sort of the bobby on the beat, rather than mm-hmm. running around with the lights and sirens on and uh, catching baddies and doing all the exciting stuff. Uh, my team and I deal with the, the longer term athletes and uh, anti-social behaviour and that kind of thing. Now, Adam, you've also got another role. I do, yeah. Um, for the last um, two years, I've been the Avon Somerset uh, Force Lead for Autism and for Neurodiversity as well. And that's really come about um, through nothing more than actually being diagnosed with autism myself. Now, now, I have to put my hand on my heart and say that the first 15 years of my policing career, and I'm 42 now, Autism was something I didn't really know all that much about. I mean, I knew what it was in vague terms. I had the same stereotypical views that I think a lot of people have. Uh, and then suddenly in sort of March 2015, it went from being something that I didn't necessarily know much about or care about, something that I cared about a great deal, which was because I was diagnosed with it myself. And like a lot of people, certainly a lot of people here in the UK, I was diagnosed because a family member was. And that's something that certainly here in the UK that we're seeing more and more often and within policing as well is that people are receiving their diagnoses later on in life because their children are being diagnosed through school. And, and that was certainly a very similar situation to when I found myself in. And what, what does that role actually entail? So I kind of, it's a funny story really because I kind of appointed myself. What happened was I was, um, 
I was given my own diagnosis and, and when I was diagnosed, I was told by the people who, who delivered that here to be very careful who I told. Um, and that came as something of a surprise to me because I thought to myself at the time, well, my natural instinct was, was to just be open about it and, uh, and not keep it hidden. The advice I was given was that um, the experience that the people who did my diagnosis, uh, the NHS in Bristol, said that you, know, you can't always guarantee that people are going to take news like that well. They may start treating you differently, they may not understand what the condition is or have stereotypical views. And I felt very much that having been in the police for, for a decade and a half or 15 years, that you know, I, I didn't want to pretend that I was the same as everybody else. And I didn't want to hide who I was. And here within the UK policing, diversity and inclusion is very important to us. And uh, our deputy chief constable at the time, he has a uh, diversity and inclusion board that, uh, um, that talks about all the issues that the guy Randy and I, and uh, basically I invited myself along because I, I felt that I had something of interest to say. And um, he gave me a, a bit of a kind telling off about not inviting myself to his meetings. But, you know, he, he allowed me to attend, allowed me to have, uh, to have five minutes on the agenda. And it all kind of went from there, really. So what we do now in Avon and Somerset is um, we're now looking at neurodiversity in a much broader sense because what we've learned over the last two years, and which I think is, is really interesting, is that we've actually got far more neurodiverse people working for us than I think we ever thought that we had. When I was given my diagnosis, I expected to be one of, one of the very few, almost one of the only ones. And I think that's far from being the case. I think there are a large number of us working within law enforcement here in the UK and probably in law enforcement worldwide as well. So what my role entails is, uh, first off, uh, because I'm prepared to be open about it, is to help people who want to join the police to understand that policing is a career for them, enables people to ask me questions about my own experience, and make me feel a bit more comfortable about bringing their whole selves to work. We also look at policies and procedures and, and ways in which we can change uh, policing for the better, as, as well as being a the, uh, the, the force lead for Avon and Somerset for autism uh, and neurodiversity. I also work, uh, I'm involved in an organisation called the National Police Autism Association, which is a staff support group, a national group we have here in the UK, whose job it is to promote neurodiversity within policing and to sort of help our colleagues understand what we're about, what we can bring, and how they can use us to the best advantage. And that's certainly a message that senior leaders here within policing in the UK are starting to listen to, they're listening to it quite carefully. And uh, I mean, which is, which is a, a really interesting stance to take and I think it's really encouraging. But you, we spoke uh, previously and you'd mentioned mm. that there had been a little bit of research done around the internal, um, I guess, incident rate of autism in the UK police force relative to the general population. Yeah, well, what we did, I mean, the first, the first thing I say about that is we're not actually certain, I don't think anybody's really certain that, that I'm aware of, how many neurodiverse people there are in society as a whole. I've heard anywhere from, from 5% to 10% of the population. It's probably higher than that. For the first time this year, um, we did a staff survey and we included neurodiversity in that staff survey for the first time. We've always asked about, uh, you know, gender and sexuality and, and race, and those questions are fairly standard. So this year, for the first time, we asked a question about the university. And as an aside, we spent a long time, a long time, trying to decide how to ask that question. Because one of the things I've learned about the neurodiverse community is that language really matters. And you've got to be really careful what questions you ask. And so something that might sound as simple as the difference between do you have a neurodiverse condition and are or are you neurodiverse are two 
you know, that has a big impact on people and people are very, very protective of the use of language and how they refer to themselves. And we ended up going for, um, are you neurodiverse and uh, regarding it as something that people are rather than something that they have. And we asked a question and we weren't really expecting the answer that we got because we're a relatively small um, organization in, term, in terms of policing and we've got just over 5,000 uh, employees. And of that, of those people who answered the survey, which is about 50%, which is about right for us, um, we had over 5% confirm that they either considered themselves to be neurodiverse or had a positive diagnosis, which was far higher than we thought it was going to be. It's nearly 130 people. Now, bear in mind when we're talking about neurodiversity in these circumstances, we made it explicit that we weren't just talking about autism or Asperger's syndrome, we were also talking about dyslexia, dyspraxia, and uh, ADHD. And so because we have those four conditions, obviously only a smaller proportion of those will, will either be on the autism spectrum or suspect that they are. But still, the numbers and the incidence rate was much higher than I think we thought it was going to be, which is really interesting. It, it is, isn't it? And, and what is it that you think might attract neurodiverse people? Um, question, yeah, so it's a really good question. It's something I get asked on a fairly regular basis. And really, the only way to answer it is to look back on my own experience and try and understand better myself why I joined the police. And... Once you look at it through that lens, it actually becomes much clearer and much easier to understand in as much as, you know, the majority of policing is about following and enforcing the rules, which those of us in the autism spectrum find really, you know, something that we take great comfort in, something we find quite easy. Yep. You know, the laws are there, we follow them, it's black and white. I mean, I wear a uniform, although obviously many of my colleagues don't, but, you know, that sort of lack of um, anxiousness about what I'm going to wear is really helpful because they're clothes they give me. So I'm dressed the same as everybody else. Um, conversations that you have with, with members of the public when you're in the police are usually quite managed and they're usually led by the police officers. So, you know, because, you know, I still hold a position that, that um, commands a certain amount of respect um, from the general public. I don't think to talk over when I'm talking. You know, people listen to me when I'm talking, which again takes away that sort of anxiety of, of having conversations. So, it's a black and white element to it. It's following the rules. It's, um, it, it's all those things added together. And one of the things that I think we do know, and I think that many would agree, is that you know, autistic people actually make really good cops, really good cops for, for a multitude of reasons. And those are the reasons why I joined the police. And, you know, policing is a family in the way that perhaps some um, occupations aren't, some career paths aren't. And we are, we look after each other and we are, um, uh, we see ourselves as a family and I think that's really helpful as well because if you grow up with autism and you haven't got many friends and you're not really sure how you fit in, joining an organisation that really wraps its arms around you is really quite nice. Do, do you see then that um, at, at least where you are, there is a greater tolerance and acceptance of difference generally? You say you know, the police force is like a family. Do, do you find that that may be the case? Again, you can only speak from personal experience, but certainly my experience has been wholly positive. You know, I can honestly say that if I hadn't had the support and encouragement of my uh, um, superiors and my peers about being open about my diagnosis, I never would have been as successful as I have been. And I think that's really important. There will always be elements of the police that, that don't behave as well as they should do. And I think that the um, that understanding of difference within the police is, is, is getting there. Others may have a different view. Some people very often say that there is a misunderstanding of difference and in some cases perhaps even a fear of it. And that may very well be the case. But on a day-to-day -day basis, I've found being open about who I am and open about my diagnosis has only actually led to good things. And I know other people who have other similar neurodiverse conditions who have the same story to tell. Standards in the police 
So then the police stations that I've worked in tend to be quite high. Others may have a different experience, but I've come across very little sexism, absolutely no racism whatsoever. And so I think other people who have different experiences are coloured by that, but certainly within the police and certainly within the police station in private when I'm talking to my colleagues and also when I'm out on the street, I, I, I do find it that we hold ourselves to higher standards, which is really helpful. That's cool. Now, one of the other things that I was really interested to, uh, to jump back on again, um, mm. or a topic to cover, was we previously discussed, um, and I can't quite remember where it was, but it was another police uh, or group force uh, that you mentioned had done a bit of a test around recruitment. Yeah, that's right, because that's one of the things that, that we've looked for at. Some details. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's, that's a really good question, actually, and I have looked into it. It's one of the forces in the UK. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I will look it up in a second so that I can remember it. And what they've done is they've looked very carefully about how they can get more neurodiversity into their, in, into their particular police force, because they, they recognise that the skills and abilities that people like I bring are really helpful uh, for a lot of law enforcement work, because, you know, and I'll let you in a little secret here, quite a lot of police work is actually quite boring. Um, and I think neurotypical people find it quite frustrating looking through hours of CCTV or looking through dozens of pages of bank statements or text messages trying to find out one mistake in an evidence chain. All that stuff is it, it attracts people with brains that, that work differently. And what they did was they ran a pilot of, um, of a promotion process or an application process where they took the neurodiverse group and a neurotypical group and they ran the process at the same time. And it was an interview. And when they did the interview on the first occasion, uh, everyone went in blind. And predictably enough, the neurotypical group did much better as a result of that. And then, as I'm given to understand it, they ran it again. Except this time they gave everyone the questions 20 minutes in advance. And they gave me the opportunity to read those questions. Mm -hmm. Now, the result of that was that the neurotypical group didn't actually do any better statistically. They, they performed around about the same level. Whereas the neurodiverse group, including those autistic people who were there, they performed very much better. And what it had the effect of doing was actually leveling the playing field. And the beauty of it was, and the really important message to take from that is, it wasn't as if the neurodiverse group was given what could be construed as an unfair advantage. It wasn't as if you had one group got one thing, the other group didn't. And that whole thing about giving everyone the same adjustment, knowing that it will disproportionately benefit one particular group, is really interesting and something that I think we're all trying to learn an awful lot more about and see if we can replicate it. Yeah, absolutely, and and it didn't provide an unfair advantage in any way. Because did the no, all it did was level the playing field. Outperformed the neurotypicals. No, no, not so. And and that's that's all you really want, isn't it? Especially if you are different well, in any way, shape, form. Is to feel that you've been given your shot. You've been given the fair opportunity. And we talk very much in even in Somerset, and uh, we have been talking about recently about something called advantage blindness, which I don't know whether you've heard of before. And it's the concept that those people who have, or a lot of people who have been very successful, have been so because you know they're, they're blind to the natural advantages that they've been taking advantage of. So, for example, many of those people wouldn't have had to walk down the road worrying about holding hands with their partner in case they get shouted at, or worried about saying the wrong thing in the wrong circumstances, which a lot of autistic people worry about, and end up then not saying anything. And those stresses that they have in life are taken away. And when you actually give people the opportunity to perform on a level playing field, it, it it has the effect of making sure that nobody's left behind, but also nobody feels as if, as if a particular group has been given something that they haven't had access to themselves. No, and, and I know um, 
did some work recently with some um, some young autistic guys um, going through a recruitment process, and and I think there was a bit of a, a hesitancy on on at least one or two of their part around being given information um, before the assessment process, yeah. feeling that maybe they were getting a whether call it like a charity leg up or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but, but, but we all, we all want to feel like that yeah. away. Yeah, because we all want to feel like we fit in, right? And nobody wants to nobody wants to feel as if they haven't done their best and they've only got what they've got because of their, their talent and their hard work. Nobody wants to feel that they've been given something, or you know, it's it's imposter syndrome, is it? They don't want to feel as if they're yeah. guilty about being successful, and nobody wants to feel like that. In actual fact, I went to a um, a workshop not that long ago, and one of the things that somebody was talking about was uh, one of their people who'd applied for a role with them. And they'd done, they'd given some sample questions um, on their website and this person had gone away and looked at the sample questions and then when they got into the interview, they were completely stumped because they weren't asked the same questions. Mm. And I will admit right now that that person almost certainly had, either was on the autism spectrum or had some autistic traits because that's what they're expecting. You've given me the questions once, right? Now you're going to ask me the same questions again. And they got quite anxious about that. And I think that, you know, that's something that, that, Certainly, we and the police need to be mindful of because, um, you know, when we're recruiting quite heavily, like we are now, about how we make sure that nobody's disadvantaged by a particular process, one way or the other. Yeah, and I guess some of those things are, it's it's a it's an easy trap to fall into. I know the current recruitment processes can be challenging. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, and I think that what what I think we need to move away from, though, I think what we need to move towards is is this. Um, and it's the same as reasonable adjustments in the workplace, right? Because we talk about this quite a lot for people with autism uh, and various other things. And we talk about, you know, somebody needs something specific for them to help them fit in with everybody else. Whereas perhaps the other way to look at it is if we design our workspaces so that they are universally um, suitable for everyone, then we don't need to worry about that. And um, I've spent some time um, talking to JP Morgan about this and, you know, they're very clear about the fact that you know if you get the working environment right in the first place you don't need reasonable adjustment you know you don't need those noise cancelling headphones and you don't need um, your separate offices or any of the other things that potentially are available and i talk about this sometimes at work and i like to use the example of a school that i went to not that long ago and it was uh, it wasn't a school just for autistic kids so they had an autistic kid in the classroom and there was a young eight-year-old kid and he had trouble with transitions um, so moving from one activity in the classroom to another, he found quite difficult. And the response they had to that was to get an egg timer. One of these egg timers full of coloured sand. It was a five-minute one. So whenever the teacher wanted to change from one activity to another, he'd take the egg timer and he'd stick it on the desk in front of him. He'd turn it over, and the kid would watch the sand run through, and he'd know when the next activity was coming. And it would keep him nice and calm, get him ready for the next uh, um, lesson, and it would lessen his anxiety. And what I was told was that there was one occasion not that long ago where the young lad wasn't at school. Um, he had to go to the dentist or something like that. And so the teacher didn't use the egg timer because you know, there's no reason why he would. And by all accounts, it was absolute havoc. <laughs> and all the kids kicked off and none of them wanted to move on to the next activity because they'd all got used to the egg timer. And the lesson to draw from that is the same thing that we'd say at work or in any other process, that an autism-friendly workplace actually benefits everyone. Absolutely. And that's a really important lesson. We have a chief inspector um, who works for us here in Aden and Somerset, and he's also autistic. He's the highest, rank the highest ranking autistic officer we've got working for us, and he's, he's also got sensory processing disorder, and he doesn't like batteries in clocks because he doesn't like clocks that tick. 
because you know they upset him. So you could always tell where he used to work because you'd find the clock sat on the desk with the battery there on it so it wasn't moving. Now the organization's got a number of choices when it comes to how they deal with it, haven't they? They can either make sure there are no meetings that he has to go to in rooms where there's clocks, or they can remove the clocks beforehand, or they can just accept that he's going to take the batteries out and the timing's going to be wrong and the next person in the room's got to change it. What they actually did, and you know, it was the most appropriate way of dealing with it, was to just buy clocks that don't tick. Because at the end of the day, there's plenty of people who don't like clocks that tick. It's not just him, but it has that disproportionate effect on him. But by getting the environment right for everyone, it also benefits him as well. And that's something that I think that we need to move to a culture of, is doing it for everyone rather than doing it as an exception. And I think that if you do that, what you actually helps to do is to integrate people with a different into a working environment much better. And also going back to the example we used a minute ago, it means that they're not, they're not feeling as if they're different, but they've been given something special, something extra that perhaps they might not feel they're entitled to, even though they are. Yeah, because I think that, um, that doing those things where it's a really bespoke approach for one individual can serve to isolate rather than... Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, well. absolutely. I mean, sometimes it is, sometimes sometimes it is necessary. To make it easier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of the times when, when companies do that, they do that because they want to do the best thing and they want to look after someone. And what I think you probably end up finding is that quite often they're, they're kind of baffled as to what they're supposed to do and they don't really know what to do. So they get a list of things that they think look like a good idea and they sort of they try them all. And you're right, if you're not careful, it has the effect of actually marginalizing someone because it's really obvious they've got all these different things. Whereas, as I said, if you, if you can get the environment right, if you can get the working environment right, uh, so that it benefits everyone, it, it helps people integrate much better. Yes, and I've heard a story of a, <clears throat> an organisation that was bending over backwards trying to help a, a, a guy that they had, um, and, and he had sensory sensitivities, and, and they were, yeah. they, were a, they built him an office, like a separate little office that was sound insulated, it was you right. know, appropriate lighting, all these things they'd done, all this stuff, and he was still mm -hmm. having so many troubles, and I think uh, what it ended up being it was it was nothing to do with work at all. It was something no. that was going on for him outside of work, and and yeah, of course. it was just bleeding through. But um, no, I think that's that's, that's something that we know as well. Yeah, <coughs> we we trying to do. Yeah, yeah, and that's something that we have to be very cognizant of. Certainly, where I work, and uh, and this conversation that we have because we're we're very we're very keen to talk about well-being these days, and we're obviously mm -hmm. very interested in the well-being of our staff, and it's an agenda that the chief officers are, are very um, keen to get behind. And what's interesting about that is that what we do find, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, is that a lot of our autistic staff and our neurodivergent staff are much more likely to bring those personal stressful issues into work with them rather than being able to have that, that door that they can close and they can just concentrate on work and just get on with things and then concentrate on what else is going on in their lives outside. With our staff, we have to be very much more conscious that they, that they can bring those problems in with them. And, you know, in, in many respects, policing can be very stressful. Uh, whether that's working late at night or whether that's dealing with some very unpleasant situations and in many cases some unpleasant people as well and those levels of stress are something that we have to be very mindful of things that uh, there are things that we can do to, to mitigate against that and interestingly going back to to what we were saying earlier when we did our staff survey and when we um, found the numbers of neurodiverse staff that we had what we were able to do is look to see where they were working as in which police department they were working in now 
the answer to that actually took us by surprise because they weren't where we thought they were going to be. Um, and if I was to ask you, um, from a layman's perspective, where would you expect to find most of those neurodiverse officers and staff? Which, which policing area would you expect them to be working in? I don't know. Well, I can imagine that's something definitely. that was investigative would be yeah. of appeal. And, and that's exactly what I thought. I thought they would be in one of our investigative departments, you know, working on high-tech crime or complex crime or, you know, that kind of thing. But it turns out most of them are exactly the same place as me. They're in neighbourhood policing. In fact, in, in terms of our neighbourhood policing cohort, we're actually fully representative of the public as a whole, which is something we work really try, we try really hard to be. You know, the, in the UK, it's the same, right? you know, the, the, the public and public police. And that took me by surprise as well, even though I worked there myself. But it wasn't until we spent some time actually sort of thinking about why that was the case and trying to understand why they were there. But once you think about it, it actually becomes, perfect. It actually becomes much easier to understand because I work uh, in a department where there is less running around. So there's less sort of immediate response to calls. There are less emergencies. I don't tend to meet people on a regular basis like my patrol team or response team colleagues do who are in emotional distress or in a heightened sense of anxiety or anything like that. Most of what I deal with is longer term neighborhood issues where people living next door to each other have fallen out or with antisocial behavior, which is quite a low level. And what we tend to find is that a lot of police officers actually find that that, that difference in pace is something that they struggle with. But our neurodiverse staff, I think, are attracted to it because of the long-term nature of it, because they get less annoyed by it uh, than perhaps other people do. And, then the, and the lack of emotional impact, again, is, I think is a really important thing. And what we also know is that those officers, when they do those jobs, they're really good at working without one being micromanaged. They're really good at working by themselves. They, so they manage their own workload, they get through an enormous amount of work and they do it with less supervision than perhaps you might expect in other areas of our business, which I think is really interesting because they're able to manage their workloads and their daily lives really, really well. It's interesting, isn't it? I, um, I do kind of see, uh, and I know it's a, a, long, a long bow to draw, but I, I sort of see that parallel that you're talking about um, with the, the sort of work that you do and being in a perceived position of authority and having the opportunity yeah. to sort of direct conversation and the like, and that yeah. takes a lot of that sort of social anxiety out. My young it son, does. Yeah, it does. he likes to play the teacher. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, we often have little lessons at home and we have to do activities and he sets the agenda for us. But I think it's the same thing where it's, he's in control of the situation and he can do yeah. it. He's not been, something's not been sprung on him. He's the one springing it on us. But, um, and and so it does come with its difficulties though. I, mean, I don't want to sound as if it's all the unicorns and rainbows because it's not. It's very difficult. And one of the things that I struggled with when I first joined the police was interviewing people, interviewing suspects. Because you sit in the room and you're taught how to how to do interviews in a very specific way. And one of the things I struggled with was I would sit on one side of the desk and, and my, my sort of my default position would be, I'm a policeman, I'm a good person, you're a criminal, you're a bad person. You're sat here because you've broken law, therefore you are a criminal, you're bad, I'm good. And it took me a while to get my head around the idea that sometimes good people do unfortunate things and that there are shades of gray, even within law enforcement. And I used to get told off and for finding it difficult, like we all do, to put myself in other people's positions when I was just basically following the rules. And that's something that I've learned over time to be a little bit more conscious of my default position in that case. And I don't think I'm the only one that has that particular issue either. I think it's quite common. Yes. Um, people can find themselves in unfortunate situations, and it's something that you have to learn by experience, I think. 
But that's interesting though, because so, I think, as you say, I suspect that's not unique to neurodiverse no, or autistic no, people, no. That, that, that sort of perspective taking. So I think, uh, okay. No, it's not. But what, what we also find, well, and I'm going back to my colleague, the, the, the chief inspector, is that he, he does a lot of public order command um, situations. So he just looks for large football, large scale football matches and things where there might be public disorder. And what he will tell you is that in stressful situations, he actually finds that his autism helps him because he will tell you that he, he makes him able to make clearer, less emotive decisions. And you can make them quicker as well. So whereas some of those neurotypical colleagues might get drawn into the emotion of a situation and then find that decision-making process more stressful, he doesn't. He's able to hone in on the issue with much more clarity and make those decisions much more quickly than perhaps others might be able to. So he very much sees that, that ability to do that as a strength in the work that he does. Yeah, he's very good at it. Yeah, I can, I, I can see how that would make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, and sort of... Able to deal with the stress of the situation, but that clarity that the clarity of thought that yeah, may come yeah. about yeah yeah he, he can just compartmentalize it much better than, than perhaps some other people some other people can do and what he also finds is that he's not as affected by it i mean academically understands that you know the stress of the situation but he doesn't actually feel that emotional drain that i think a lot of people do feel and what we also know and i think going back to what we were saying a minute ago is that interestingly enough we know where most of our police officers uh, who are neurodiverse are in their neighbor policing and historically and it's a bit of a generalization i admit majority of the people who work in this department have actually got more service so it's a job you move into the longer you spent in the police so what that kind of implies to us is not only is not only is policing you know a good career for autistic people to consider getting into but it's also something that they stay in and they stay in it for a long time and you know we've only asked the question for the first time this year 2018 and i don't think that number has gone up dramatically over the years i don't think it's something we just stumbled across i think you probably always had that number of neurodiverse people we just not realized that we've had them they probably don't realize that, that there's anything different about them themselves some people i think go through their entire policing careers without noticing the difference and so i think what we understand is that we're probably in terms of um, the country as a whole, we're, we're a really good employer for autistic people. And now's the time for us to start looking about how we actually encourage more people like that to join us. And then how do we leverage their, their particular skills once they get in here as well, you know, rather than having to start? Because with policing, as I'm sure you probably can appreciate, in terms of competency, we have a line and everyone has to meet that line. Regardless of the differences, you have to get above that line and demonstrate that you're competent. But in policing, everyone starts at the bottom. Everyone starts as a police constable doing two years on the streets, early's, lates and nights answering the radio. But now perhaps is the time to take a step back and think, do we actually need our autistic staff to do that? Perhaps there's another pathway into the police to get them into the areas where we know they're going to be most efficient, where we know they're going to be most effective. And I think we do need to consider that. We need to consider being more flexible in how we actually recruit people and how we get them into the areas where they're going to provide the most benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that sort of goes for, arguably, you'd say, well, what you'd want to try to take that approach for most people. Yeah, absolutely. A round peg into a round hole. The sooner you can yeah. do that, the, the better everyone's going to be. But um, but I do appreciate your your point around a, a minimum standard. I think we'd all probably yeah. know that's the case for any police force. Well, well, yeah, well, yes, absolutely. And, you know, there are the things that we do have to, that we do have to sort of demonstrate that we're capable of doing the competency framework is set by, by government and, uh, and that's very, very rigid with good reason. Mm. And 
But then there are other forces that have taken that a step further as well. And Hampshire Police, so down on the south coast uh, of, uh, of the UK, they have an autism policy. And they've actually, they drafted it and we're hopefully going to copy it with Aiden and Somerset. But one of the things that their policy says, which I think is really interesting, is that if you apply to join them as a police officer and for whatever reasons you can't meet that standard because you're not able to, they will then offer you a police staff role. So one of their civilian police roles, they'll offer it to you straight away. And I think that's really helpful because it gives people that safety net. <clears throat> it doesn't work out for them for whatever reason, and they still can have a career within the organization. Absolutely. And they don't then have to start from the start, which I think is really interesting. And, and as you say, I think the potential for longevity of employment, not just for the individual, but for the organization, and I think particularly for the organization, has got to be appealing. You know, retaining knowledge, reducing turnover, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and one, yeah, we know that about policing. People tend to stay in it for a career. It's still, even even now, it's still seen as something you stay and do for 35, 40 years. And, and that's been the case. Mm-hmm. My dad was in the police. We know there's a familial link to it in the UK yeah. in terms of people joining it from one family and staying in it generation after generation. I mean, I was staggered when I found out that I got my own diagnosis, uh, How because I didn't know much about it at the time, although I know much more now, how few people with autism, even in this country, are actually employed. How many people have got long-term, long-term jobs and have actually managed to keep a job? And there I am, uh, you know, 15 years in before I was diagnosed. And I've done 17 and a half years now in the police, which makes me quite unusual in terms of the autistic community. Uh, um, yes. And what you also have to do when you're in my position, but there's a sort of, a sort of I'm a sergeant, so I've been promoted once in 17 years. And, I, and before I was diagnosed, I used to sit down and think to myself, well, my career's not going very well. I've only been promoted once. I'm not really getting on as I thought I might do. And it was only when I was diagnosed that I then looked back at it and realized that I have to redefine what success means to me in terms of what I now know about myself. So while I might have sat there before and thought to myself, I haven't got as far as perhaps I would have liked to, knowing what I know now, I know that I'm incredibly lucky, incredibly lucky to have been very well looked after, incredibly lucky to have found a profession where I can thrive. And I'm by no means unusual in policing terms. I mean, I'm not, not, not particularly, um, I'm very much middle of the road academically. There's nothing other than my autism that makes me particularly unusual. But I've, I've been, by autistic standards, really, really successful. And that's what I think we need to do, certainly in UK policing, is, is to share that ability to be successful with the autistic community and, and help them to look at us as somewhere where they, they can come and thrive rather than being um, something that they might not ever consider in the first place. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect message to, uh, to wrap up on. And Adam, if, um, if people were interested to learn a little bit more about um, the, or the autism or autistic support organization that yeah. you're a part of with the police force yeah. and the work that you're doing over there, What's the yeah. best way for them to reach out and get in touch? Uh, as I said, I, I work uh, with an organisation called the National Police Autism Association, and we're, we're a national support group. Uh, and uh, we um, we're always looking to reach out and speak to people in, in other parts uh, in other parts of the world. There's a website uh, npaa.org.uk, mm-hmm. and if people log onto the website, it tells you everything you need to know about us. We have a closed web forum, so people can actually come on and discuss these issues in, in confidence. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, look, sorry about the audio today. It, uh, it got away from us. Uh, things happen. <laughs> anyway, so if you, uh, if you wanted to get in touch with Adam, uh, you can hit him up via npaa.org.uk or grab him on Twitter at AutisticCop. 
one word. Uh, thanks for listening again and uh, stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. Thanks, guys. Bye.